and welcome to the finale of season one of The Masked Cricketer, a cricket Q&A podcast based on the live show that took place over the UK lockdown of 2020. This is it. 15 episodes of The Masked Cricketer are in the bag. In this episode, Woodsy and K-Dog hit the trifecta and get another former England legend on the show. Our Masked Cricketer reveals whether Nasser Hussein was really a misery guts, how going to the cinema before a big match helped calm nerves, and how important second-class cricket is to the game. Today's episode and the live show are all about raising awareness and funds for the Lord's Taverners charity. Woodsy, for the last time this series, who's the Masked Cricketer? I'm going to ask the question, are you the legend opening quick bowler that is Andrew Caddick? Hey! Ah, brilliant. That's a good one. That is the best mask so far, by the way. Quality. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. How you doing? Is that a bit hot under that? bit hot, Trying to keep you under there as long as we possibly could, to be honest. <laughs> we did have your name up after about eight minutes, but we thought we'd just roll with it a little bit longer. <laughs> so, apologies for that. Good job, I, got I always ask this, Andrew. Obviously, over the last few months, it's been a difficult time for a lot of people. But how have you been coping over the last sort of three or four months? How's, how's things been going for you? No, it's been tough. We've been fortunate down here in the southwest. It's it's been pretty low key as far as the events over pass around the world. We live in a house in a village, so we're quite fortunate. I've got to feel sorry for the people who have been living in apartments and detached houses with no gardens, and it's hard work. Um, I've been fortunate we've got a large garden here. So, um, but yeah, it's been tough. Unfortunately, that's, that's the things we have to do, and I'm sure it's going to carry on again. So we've just got to keep our fingers crossed that people abide by the rules at the moment and do it for the, for the greater, greater good, really, because... I don't think this pandemic's going away very quickly. No, absolutely. We had Mike Gatting on last week, and he, he mentioned the, the gardening was definitely down to Mrs. Gatting. Is the gardening down to you, or is it is it the wife? Yeah, most of it. All the all the hedges and trees have been trimmed. <laughs> Gets to the point where uh, all I do now is mow the lawns. Most of it's done. And then the wife started getting me indoors to paint rooms and bits and pieces. I was doing all right until B&Q opened. <laughs> the paint and everything so damn b&q for opening and allowing me to make a paint oh b&q yeah <laughs> i know what you're saying actually it's very similar here i i was i was reminded there actually when i saw andrew strauss on a thing he did for aston rowan cricket club locally and he he had one of these automatic mowers in the background while he was on film so it was all being done for him <laughs> Whilst whilst he was uh, he was on screen. Don't have that. I have my son pushing the lawnmower. <laughs> He's, that's automatic enough for me. <laughs> Brilliant, Andrew. I'm going to come on to to your career. I'm going to sort of start really with your transition between New Zealand and England and how that sort of came about and what you had to go through to to do that. Was that an easy transition or was there some sort of loopholes you needed to go through? Firstly, I came to England in 87, 1987. I didn't come here to play cricket. Well, I came to play a bit of club cricket, but I didn't come here to, to be an England cricket. I came to have a look around, most Kiwis do. Left school, jumped on a plane. I had family in uh, in London. Father's older sister lives in London, so I lived with them for six months. I worked, 
here and I played a little bit of cricket and I I play with a club called Hampstead Cricket Club just up Hampstead Hill. Not Hampstead Hill, it was near um, Finchley Road. It was just off Finchley Road. I turned up there. My uncle and aunt knew of a knew they had contacts at Bronsbury Cricket Club in Hampstead. So I decided I'll go to Hampstead, ask them if they wanted to play, wanted to play a bit of cricket. And they said, well, we don't really know how good you are. So they played me on the Saturday on the second team. I scored 80 or took eight wickets. And they said, well, next week you can play for the first team. <laughs> So I started playing at, at Hampstead and I, ca- I came back for three years. In between that, I played a little bit of Middlesex YC's cricket as an overseas player. Because back then, for club, or should I say for county cricket, you could play, I think it was two or three overseas players and trialists in your second team. So I did that. I played a little bit, as I said, Middlesex YC's, played a little bit Middlesex seconds. There was a gentleman called Clive Radley who was then the coach at Middlesex and um, did reasonably well. But my break came when the chief exec of some of, should I say, chief exec of Hampstead Career Club was a very good friend of the then Somerset coach, Jack Birkenshaw. So I managed to get a trial match for Somerset. They put me forward, played, played a game, played a game at, here at Taunton against an Australian university touring side. And we had, if anybody remembers, a Roland Leferve, who was a Dutch lad. He was trialing at the same time as me. Now, Taunton back then, if you think the road outside is flat, Taunton was flat. It was one of the best wickets in, in the world, to be honest about it. We had Jimmy Cook at the time scoring 1,000 runs before the end of May. And uh, for two consecutive seasons, I think he scored over 2,500 runs. So at that stage, Taunton was flat. I got smashed all parts by this Australian university side, and I thought that was my opportunity gone. But luckily... We travelled the next day to Surrey Oval. We played against the second team at Surrey Second Eleven team. My wee bowled first. I took eight for thirty-two, and the rest is history. Somerset signed me up there and then. We looked at the processes associated with me qualifying as an English cricketer. The one thing that people don't realise is that or don't understand is I did not come to England to play cricket to start with. I came to have a look around, but when I saw the opportunities that were there to be a professional cricketer because I played a bit of underage cricket in New Zealand. New Zealand cricket was very amateurish. You had to have a job outside playing cricket. And the cricket season in New Zealand was probably, for especially for first-class cricket, was only two months. It was very short. I knew a number of players who played for Canterbury who had have their outside jobs, and their bosses would give them the time off to go and play first-class cricket in New Zealand. And for me, I wanted to be a professional cricketer. So when the opportunity came with Somerset, I jumped at it because it meant that I became a professional cricketer doing what I wanted to do, which was play cricket professionally. And that's where it started back in 1990, uh, 1990, 1991, playing for Somerset. That's, that's a fantastic story. I, I, that's re- really amazing, actually, how that, that came about. You said mentioned Jack Birkinshaw. Jack Birkinshaw has come up quite quite a few times on, on this programme, actually. Was, was he quite a, an inspirational character at, at the time for you? He was just a good coach. He's a good all-round coach. I think the the issues back in the early late 80s, early 90s was that the wickets around the country weren't very conducive to producing good cricketers. Taunton was very flat. The Oval was very flat, but true and quick. Uh, Surrey, uh, should I say, Lancashire Old Trafford was flat, but you were easily placed. And you were coming off the back of places like Knotts when you had Rice and Hadley. So I was coming on the back of that. So that had been there. Then the wickets at Trent Bridge was green and did a lot. So... You had those differences in pitches around the country, but the majority of it was mainly geared up for batters. The only good scenario back then was that 
you could play overseas players in second and first class cricket. So you might have had two or three overseas players and they played in the second team and they played in the first team so you could rotate them. And the beauty of that was as well was you had some serious second team cricket going on. And that's one of the things I find with English cricket is being let down by is that we don't have strong, I don't feel we have strong second team cricket in the country producing those players to go on to first and then on to test level cricket. Because the more cricket you play at a higher level, the better you get. Back in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, you had some serious players playing in second team cricket, also playing in test match and first class cricket. So it was very well managed. It was an exciting time. Jack was a good all-out coach. He moved on. People like Ann, uh, was it Bob Cotton came along and then we had Kevin Shine come on board, then Dermot Reeve, and then it went on to Andy Hurry and then so on and so forth over the, over the many years. The nice thing about Somerset was a very much family-orientated club. Great atmosphere, good bunch of lads, very much a, it wasn't like a professional, I guess, a test team or test club, as I say, like Surrey, that was a very much centred around the family atmosphere. And that's the one thing that's great about Taunton. The, the ground here at Taunton is in the middle of the town. So it's very much a county that's developed by the supporters around the town. You're absolutely right. I, mem- I remember playing, obviously played for Oxfordshire against Somerset Twos and a certain Martin Crow played against us. That was the standard back then. It was amazing. Kieran, I've kept you under wraps. I know I've got to say, obviously, we're doing this for the Lord Taverners. If you've had a bit of entertainment, then please donate. That would be absolutely brilliant. Kieran, I know I've, I've kept you under wraps again. I'm going to let you loose on, on Andy. It's very rare for me to be quiet for so long, Andrew. So, yeah, Daryl's done a good job there. I want to talk about your domestic career initially and then obviously move on to your hugely successful international careers. Domestically, you made your county championship debut in 92, and I think you were. You pretty much came to the party straight away. You, you were among the wickets very early, taking four wickets against Gloucestershire. At that point, when you made your county debut, were you at that stage thinking perhaps you had the opportunity of playing international cricket? Not really, no, because the benefits between when I was signed up for Somerset back in my trial match, the benefits were that at the time I had to qualify to play for England and I had to do five years. So the, the five years were counted as 87, 88, 89, was that 87, 88, 89, 90, 91. So the benefit I had 1991, I played a lot of second team cricket and that put me in good stead as second team cricket. So I remember my last second team um, year before I qualified the following year, I took 96 second team wickets in the championship and the second team championship. So I was there ready to go. The transition to first team cricket was, there was a step up, but it's not as big as the step is now. Uh, that was the beauty of the amount of cricket we played at, uh, at that sort of level. And the other thing is I'd already played my first class first match was against the West Indies touring side. So my first first class wicket was Desmond Haynes. My second was Richard Richardson. And I remember it vividly. So my first first class wicket was Desmond Haynes tried to pull me. He got caught mid on and he broke his bat at the same time. (laughs) So that was a thank you very much. My second second class wicket was Richard Richardson playing me off the back foot, went straight to Jimmy Cook, nicked it, went straight to Jimmy Cook at first slip. So if I was ever to say that you you know you can actually play at that level, you know those were two pretty serious players to play against. The West Indies team back then was a pretty serious team. So the transition from 
second team cricket to first class cricket, first team cricket back then wasn't as big as it is now. So that was one of the massive benefits for me. So when I went from first team that first year, 92, I think I took about 70 odd wickets, 74, 76 wickets that first year. That to me was just like being at home. I was just enjoying the atmosphere, learning. I also had some great support and great captains at the time. It, it was for me, it was, you know, ball was thrown at me. It was like, run with a gauntlet, get on with it and just enjoy it. And that's what I did the first year. And uh, luckily I was, I was selected to go off and play for the uh, England A down to Australia that end of that year. So it was a great, for me, it was a great first class uh, start. I suppose it could also almost be argued, Andrew, that that could have been a, a little omen to what was to follow in terms of one of your most memorable spells ever in international cricket, which I know we're going to talk about a bit later, getting those two out early in your career that you know maybe that's that served as a little uh, a little teaser of what was to come with your career because obviously uh, finished up with lots and lots of test wickets uh, I know you and Darren Goff obviously played together in the same side and had a bit of a friendly rivalry so moving on so obviously that first year you impressed and you only took wickets and how did it sort of come about that that, that sort of developed further um, in terms of getting into the England setup. You mentioned England A. It was a little while before you got into the England setup, but it wasn't that long considering you had to wait five years in the first place. No, but you know, to, to me, it was one of those surreal moments because I wasn't, my ambition wasn't to play for New Zealand. It wasn't play, to play for England. It was to be a first-class cricketer, to make a living and enjoy playing, being, an, being a professional cricketer. The bonus for me was being recognised by England because I can remember vividly we were playing... I think it was 92, my first first-class year. We used to play at Clarence Park, which is in Western Supermare. So we had a couple of outgrounds. One was Bath, one was Clarence Park. And I remember vividly that that first year when I was playing, doing really well, we were playing at Clarence Park. I can't remember who we were playing against, but there was a request for me to go to the office to answer a phone call. And I went, okay, so I went to the office. And they said, well, there's a phone call for you from New Zealand. I've gone, oh, Sorry. Picked up the phone and it was Martin Crow on the end of the phone. So Martin Crow, he said to me, look, Andy, I know you're playing in, in England. You're doing really well, but we are selecting the touring team to go to Pakistan. Would you like me to consider you as being part of the touring party to come back and play for New Zealand against Pakistan? And I blatantly basically was gobsmacked, first of all, that Martin was on the end of the phone. Secondly, I was gobsmacked. He asked me whether I want to go back and play for New Zealand against Pakistan to be selected for the touring team and thirdly I was like well quite smack I was gobsmacked I said no because I was talking to the New Zealand curricular captain at the time couldn't believe he was calling me and I was gobsmacked I just said no I'm not I haven't spent the last five years qualifying to be a professional cricketer to throw that all away I already knew where my life for the rest of you know ever how long playing cricket was going to be it was going to be playing in England the fact that England then was, I saw, was selected to go on the England A tour to Australia was a great bonus for me. One of the compliments was that myself and Mark Laffer went on that tour, who I still rated now as one of the best England cricketers ever produced. But unfortunately, he, he gave it up very early. He didn't uh, like the pressures put on him and he just wanted a quiet life. But as a player, I would put him up there with the likes of Ricky Ponting. I'd put him up there with the likes of even Joe Root now, that's how good he was back then. And as, he was a natural, talented player. But I luckily went with someone like Mark on tour. We had a great tour of Australia. It was a good tour. Then came back and lucky I did I did enough 
for them to actually consider me for that summer to play against the Australian team, the Ashes in 93. I know that looking through your profile, I know that Ken Rutherford, I think, made a, a comment that he sort of later rude that you came to try your luck in England, sort of suggested that you, you slipped through the, the net for, for them. But I, I guess that um, the decision you made ha, ha, has led you to becoming one of England's finest ever bowlers. I think number 11 on the all-time list. We obviously saw Stuart Broad today go to 500 wickets. But at the time you were playing with, with Darren Goff, you, you and Goff together in the England setup were an amazing sort of potent duo. And obviously you took best part of 500 wickets between you in, in your careers how did that sort of rivalry if you like come come off really was it a friendly rivalry I mean I know that you finished very close to each other I think five wickets difference in the end was there a bet, a bet on who's going to finish no Darren and I uh, great character Darren he's lion-hearted he's got a massive heart and he'd run through a brick wall for England but you know he was he was and still is considered as one of the best opening bowlers England's ever produced Lionhearted, as I said, he just ran in all day. We complimented each other because he was, with the greatest respect, bulky, and I was tall and gangly. So as far as an opening partnership is concerned, it worked quite well because if you had two, two tall men, yeah, batsmen will get used to it. But when you've got a skiddy bowler who's quick and a, and a tall bowler who's reasonably quick, it just complements each other. So if he was attacking one end, I'd tie up one end. If I was attacking one end, he would tie up the other end. So we worked very well. Now, a lot of people think that we were we hated each other and we didn't get on. We got on like a house on fire. In fact, there are a number of times when we go training and the night before a test match in England, we'd go to the pitches. We used to stay at the Swiss Cottage Hotel, married at Swiss Cottage Hotel. And in the middle of the Swiss Cottage is a picture theatre, cinema. Wednesday night before a test match, you'd be a little bit buzzing, you'd be out and about, whatever. And you think, well, Goffey and I might go to the cinema and watch a movie. And we'd sit there and chew on a bit of popcorn, have a few, ever, ever have a Coke, whatever, watch a decent movie, then go to bed. And it just got rid of the nerves the day before. But it just gave you a little bit of normality. So you weren't thinking about what was going to be happening the following day too much. So we would always get on. We we had a lot of banter. There's a lot of rivalry as far as bowler to bowler, as far as on the field is concerned. But you need that. You know, I've always said cricket, and I'll always I'll always say this, and people curse me for saying it, but cricket's not a team game. It's an individual game. It becomes a team when you need the team team support. But as an individual, it's not a team game because there's not... When I'm facing Brett Lee and he's bowling at nearly 100 mile an hour, there's nobody standing in front of me facing him for me. Okay, And it's the same when I'm bowling at Tindalka or Lara or Ponting or War. There's nobody sitting there going, oh, you need to bowl this, you need to bowl that, you need to bowl bowling the ball for me. It's me against him. So it's a very much an individual game. I've always said it's a it's a team game when you ask your mate to either catch the ball or chase it to the boundary before it goes for four. The team comes when the team and the individuals do well. That's when it gels. But as far as as far as an, a sport's concerned, it's not like football. It's not like rugby. It's an individual game, and that is one of the things that NASA bought to that team when he took over captaincy in the late nineties, early two thousands. He took his selfish attitude of being an individual to say, do your own thing, do what you do well and stop worrying about everybody else and just concentrate on yourself. And that was why England at that stage in the early 2000s started to produce and started to do well. So I'll always say it, and people will hate me saying it, at the end of the day, it is very much an individual game and it becomes a team again when you need that support from your fellow players. And that's why it's one of the best games as a player and as a sportsman could ever play. 
you made a really good point. It is it is an individual game played by a team, isn't it? So yeah, it is one one person against against another person essentially when when you're facing. You talked about NASA Hussein there. I think it's fair to say that that NASA took over the, the, the captaincy of England at a time when England were really in the doldrums, and, and actually he was the one that started to sort of help improve the fortunes of English, English cricket. I think it was around sort of late 90s, early 2000s when the England team really started to sort of get back on track. And you must have been thrilled to be part of that and actually be actually a part of the dressing room that saw that improvement over the years. Well, it was a pretty, was a pretty big time for English cricket because between 93, 97, around that sort of period of time, we went from the TCCB, Test and County Cricket Board, to the ECB. And as players, we went from Somerset County players to England players. So whereas you were employed by Somerset and you went on loan to England and England reimbursed the county for your time away from them, it went the other way. So you became the 19th county, the ECB, and you were employed by the ECB. And the ECB, when Somerset wanted you, paid the ECB for your time. So it went completely opposite. Now, the beauty of that was that gave players like myself, especially bowlers, and then towards the end, batters, control of when they needed to bowl, how they needed to bowl, preparing themselves for test cricket in the future. And that's where it is now. That's where now it's probably the best it has ever been. So people like Broad, people like Anderson, the Wokes in the Woods of this world, even the Archers now are starting to benefit. Well, Broad and Anderson benefited because... They became part of the team. They became England cricketers and they became players for England. So they were looked after by England. Unfortunately, when we when we made that transition, there was always the fast fix. England was always looking for the fast fix. So they needed fast bowlers who could take wickets. They needed batsmen who could score runs. And when you're playing against some of the teams we played against, like Pakistan, you're looking at bowlers like Wazam and Wakar, Mushtaq Ahmed, you're looking at Australian teams with the likes they had, the Borders, the two War Brothers. You had McGrath, Gillespie, and Warren. You know, Warren was just coming on the side. You had some serious opposition. That was when the game needed the time for players, England players. They needed the time to actually build their skills, and they could do that under the, under the governance of ECB. So we made that transition to the contracts they have now. So that was a massive transition. And on top of that, when that started, and that was when NASA had just started taking over, and Duncan, who was the most influential coach we ever had, the two of them gelled very well, and they produced a team that went on to win the Ashes in 2005. So under their umbrella and under their guidance, that developed the England that it is today. So NASA started it with Duncan, and then Vaughan took over it with Duncan, and then it went on from there. So that is where the transition from cricketers that were looked after more by their counties than actually the, the, the England team, that's when the transition took over when those East, they became ECCB uh, contracted players and they came under the governance of the ECB. That's fantastic. You know, it was a transitional period, wasn't it? And it really did move, move English cricket on, I think. I was going to ask you there, but the characters in that England side at the time, who was good in the dressing room? Who had a few... Uh, I, I always ask this question, and, and I, I think 
some people have been a bit frightened to say anything. You know, what what's in the dressing room stays in the dressing room, sort of thing. But is there any sort of funny stories and on characters that that uh, were? You, in have, you have lots of characters. Yeah, Goffy was a massive character. I mean, he enjoyed the limelight. He enjoyed the um, the focus on him. He, but he he was that sort of bubbly sort of person. He still is today. Tuffers was a character. You know, I remember I played. There was a reason why they called him the cat. And that was simple fact that he slept more than he played. As simple as that. So I remember playing in an Ashes series, not an Ashes series, in an Asia versus the rest of the world series. We played in Dakar. This is one year, I can't remember the year it was, but Cat and I were asked to go and play, represent some of the rest of the world. We came out of a reasonably warm summer. And this was in September, October. And we went off to, it might have been November. I can't remember, but it was the back end of the year. So we'd stopped cricket. We'd finished the season. We went to Dhaka. It was 46 degrees. So we've come from the cold winter going into autumn of England to 46 degrees in Dhaka. Now, Cat, I bowled at my overs and I was seeing stars. That's how hot it was. Chris Kens was the bowler at the other end with me. We were Gul Koku. I was seeing pink elephants when I was bowling. We had Sachin Tendulkar just kept on smacking us to the boundary, scoring runs. It was one of the most fantastic games. But I can remember vividly, Cat came on, he bowled. He bowled his nine overs on the trot. He walked off, or he ran off, went straight to the dressing room. And at Dakar, they had massive bean bags as your chairs. He just curled up in the middle of the bean bag in an air-conditioned room. We didn't see him for the rest of the day. We didn't see him for the rest of the night. He was gone. You've got people like Cat who are very much, they, have, they are characters. And it's wonderful to have characters in the dressing room. Goffy was a massive character in the dressing room. Back then, I had people like Alan Mulally was a character in the dressing room. I can remember we played, I think it was uh, it was in South Africa. One of the crowd yelled at Alan Malali from the boundary, hey, Malali, lend me your brain. I want to be able to build an idiot. So it was all this banter going on and, you know, those sorts of things. You can always remember it. And then uh, as far as Goffey was concerned, the one-liners that Goffey had come out were brilliant, such as they, they call me Rhino because I'm as strong as an ox. Now, that was quite common for him to say things like that. There was another time when we were coming to land into Napier into these little, in these little aircraft in New Zealand for a one-day game, and he came out with a clangor. Uh, it's amazing how low these planes get when they come into land. You know, it's, it's characters like that. You just think, you just carry on. But, you know, characters in dress rooms are great. You've got to be able to have banter in a dressing room. You've got to take the piss out of each other because at the end of the day, you tend to be with players for quite a, a long period of time. So you do develop some uh, great relationships with players over the course of the years. So you, you mentioned about NASA there. Was, was, he quite, was he quite strict in his sort of regime as, as captain or could you have a little bit of a laugh with him? Or, or, no, you, could, you could have a laugh with Nass. He was He's a great guy, Nass. He was very much labelled as a misery guts, Captain Miserable, um, nasty and all that, but he wasn't. He just wanted England to do well. He wanted players to do what they did at their counties. He always used to say to me, you know, Caddy, there's the ball, go and bowl like you do at Somerset. And to have a captain who just backed you and just supported you was brilliant. I remember a couple of test matches we played, I bowl well, and there'll be other people who take the wickets and get the applauds, but he'd come up and say, look, Caddy, I remember one vividly against Sri Lanka at uh, Edgbaston. I got three wickets in each innings, but there were major wickets in each innings, and I bowled pretty well during that test match. And there was accolades given to other people who scored runs. But he came out to me and said, Caddy, if it wasn't for you and the efforts you put in this test match, we probably would have lost that game. But bloody well done. You deserve a lot more than you got. And those are the sorts of things that NASA would do. But the beauty of NASA was if you drew a line and you stepped over that line, yes, he could turn nasty. 
because all he was doing was trying to get you to do what he wanted you to do in the space of what you were capable of. He backed you to the hill. And he'd, he'll tell you, he'd tell you straight to the face. If you're doing something wrong or you needed more out of you, he'd tell you straight to the face. He wouldn't batter and walk away. And he wouldn't sit there telling everybody else about what was going on. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't go to the press and do it behind your back. He'd say it to your face. And there's a player, there's nothing better than a captain coming in and saying, bloody well done, or that way, you need to sort it out. You know where you are then. And I think that is one of the key things to Nass and Duncan. They developed a side where players understood their position in the game, their position in the side. And not only that, it made the players understand the you know your fellow players' benefit in the side. So it was a great era to play in. You know, who would have thought we'd gone to Pakistan and won in Pakistan? Who would have thought we'd have gone to Sri Lanka and won in Sri Lanka? Those are two massive test series away from home that developed and I said went to the next step to play playing towards that uh, Ashes series in 2005. It's, it's hard to go there isn't it and, and actually win a series so you're absolutely spot on it's, it's really interesting there because I always feel when I'm coaching honesty is the best policy you know there's no you can't flower something up if it's not there to be flowered up you've, you've got to be Totally there. I mean. You need to be straight with people about this is rubbish. This is where you need to be. Unfortunately, now don't understand with coaching now. Maybe it's to my detriment, but asking a player to self-analyze himself, I don't think helps. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. But you can cut out. You can cut all that out and stop wasting a couple of days trying to explain something to some person trying to analyze themselves to get their own answer out of themselves and just tell them straight. It helps because you get on with it. I think coaching there has has been push too much to the safety conscious and worrying about the attitude of the player and just tell them straight, tell them what the way you think it is and debate it. Because if somebody has the character and you tell somebody that they don't like and they come back at you, all of a sudden there's a debate happening and out of it, people learn. I would learn as a coach and they'd learn as a player. But if you're always asking the player, what do you think about that? They don't learn because they're not being guided in the right direction. So I think there's a time and a place for that. But more importantly, there's a time and a place for straight honesty. If there's a reason to say, just say it. But don't blurt it out. But use it as a constructive way of saying it. But get debate going. Because at the end of the day, I think debate in cricket is where you learn. And I don't care what anybody says, whether it's cricket, sport, business, commerce, you need to debate things. You need people to talk. That's how, that's how businesses work forward. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, actually. It does make a, a lot of sense. Kieran, I know you've got a couple more questions that you, you're itching to ask. I, know. I am, yeah. I'd like to go now, if we can, to, to that test match, Andrew, the, the one that everybody that remembers your career, I certainly remember watching it live, the West Indies game, when you produced that, that remarkable spell, four wickets in over. I think you nearly got five, actually, from my recollection. There was a, there was one that I think was just past that. <laughs> it was it was fantastic. The atmosphere, I believe it was Headingly again. It always seems to be at Headingly, these sort of things happen. But you won that game by an innings of 39 runs in what was a low-scoring game. But that spell in the second innings, Andrew, what, what are your recollections of that? It was obviously, presumably, the, the best spell of your career. Uh, and certainly the atmosphere on the day was just absolutely fantastic. It was a combination that summer because... West Indies had come to the UK. We'd played at Edgbaston and got absolute trounced. I think it was Edgbaston. And then we were 1-0 down in the series and we went to the Lords. And to us, Lords was the pinnacle. Compared to the four wickets in the over in that spell, the Lords spell for me was 
the underlying best spell I think I've ever bowled second innings. And it just transformed the game for us. Um, to bowl the West Indies out. And they were still a phenomenal side. They were a very good side. They had some serious players in their team. And they had some hard-hitting players in their team. But to bowl them out for 54, I think it was, or 52-54, was unheard of. And it just turned the series around on its head. But going on to Headingley, Headingley for me, I do not like bowling down a hill. It is one of those fundamental things I hate. So at Lords, I hated bowling from the main stand end. I love to bowl up the hill at, at the nursery end because... For me, running down a hill, I need rhythm. I'd run past the crease. So I wouldn't be right. And I'd just keep falling. And it just wouldn't feel balanced, the crease. Running up a hill, you can hit a hill. You can you can target a hill. And you can set your pace on a hill. So I like bowling at the nursery and at Lords. And then that game at Headingley, I bowled down the hill because Goffey liked bowling up the hill. And in that series, Goffey bowled superbly. You know, we all bowled well. You know, we had Cork who bowled well. Craig White, who was an unsung hero on that series, he bowled phenomenally well. And he was the quickest of all of us. So he was a quick bowler. But Goffey bowled superbly that series. And he, he did some damage at the top of the order. And he did it bowling up the hill at Headingley. And I kept saying to NASA, I want to bowl up the hill. But Goffey kept taking wickets, so he didn't stop bowling. <laughs> so it wasn't until I think it was after, after lunch or after tea, I can't remember which it was, but I finally got my opportunity to bowl up the hill and everything clicked. It was simple as that. It was just a magic spell of, I think it was about four or five overs, if that. But the beautiful thing was for me, I hit my rhythm and even better, the ball swung beautifully. So Goffey was swinging the ball. I was swinging the ball. I can still remember the first LBW, which was Wrigley Jacobs, I think it was. And a yeah. lot of the commentators said, oh, no, that's not out. That's not out. That's a very fortunate ball. But when they did, it was dead. <laughs> the next three balls, because they all swung, and that over, it was just. I think if you gave me the ball again and it was swinging like that, I don't think I'd hit. I don't think I'd hit three wickets again in the over. Um, it was just an extraordinary day, extraordinary over. When you know that over, everything clicked. The ball swung. It was, yeah, it was unbelievable. So, um, but it was great. But as I said. The Lord's Test match for me was the ultimate because walking back down the nursery and when we bowled the West Indies out there on the and I had the wickets five for the atmosphere at Lord's was unbelievable, it was spine chilling. But then the spell at uh, at Henningley was more or less from the Test matches before. It was just onward going and and yeah, it was a great series, great series for England. And you're going to be in the annals of history for that. Obviously, being on the honours board at Lords, uh, there's not many cricketers in the world that will ever ever have that opportunity, and, and you're on there. I was just going to go back to the Henley uh, test. Obviously, that spell that you bowled was fairly late in the day, um, and uh, I think the Western Terrace were certainly in good voice. In terms of atmospheres, would you say Headingley was one of the best vocal atmospheres? I know Lords uh, have, have their own sort of demographic of a supporter, but Headingley always, to me, seems to be the one that sort of gives uh, yeah. gives the most noise. They do. It's they, yeah, they had the big stand there. That big stand had just been built a few years before, and it was a massive stand. It was a... Yeah, Headingley are... They, yeah, as you know, yeah, Lords, you can't go and dressed up as a nun or a fuzzy duck or anything it's just very prim and proper yeah that's why lords to me was one of the most amazing days because of that it was a very much a hierarchy of what you should be doing as a spectator but that day went out the window it was wonderful headingly you're right it's there are some atmospheres around around the world uh heading is one of them but Headingley, yeah you're right it once the northerners get a bit of ale in them you, they're non-stop so um the chanting was great 
The worst thing for them, though, was it was it was over in two days. So those people who had tickets the third yeah. or fourth day, they wouldn't have been drinking. So they were all sent home. And the worst thing for us was we that, that second night, we had a great night out in Headingley. Problem for me and Goffey was, because we'd done so, we had to be back at the, the ground at 10 o'clock in the morning with hangovers to do the press. Yeah, there's some pitfalls of, of doing well in test cricket, but um, no, it was, a, it was a great test. But the atmosphere at Henley is one of the it's, – it's legendary. It's a great atmosphere. Those days, 2001, I think was a great summer for English cricket. Going forward, it was even better as it went forward. I want to move on and ask you about some of the players that you played against. One of the players that you would have played against, which you know is the biggest West Indian legend of, of recent times, uh, Brian Lara. You must have bowled at him quite a lot in your career. And uh, what, what did you make of him? Was he impossible to get out or, or was he just a different class above it? It's something that I've always no, wanted he, to speak he to. Was, he was easy to get out, especially after he got 375. He was, he was great. He was <laughs> to get out in the world. Um, <laughs> I, I rated that stage. Brian was untouchable at that stage. He was the best batter the world had ever seen. He was untouchable. The day he got 375, that day, that morning, he went, He had already played nine holes of golf in Antigua. So um, he was relaxing. And he, the, the funny thing with De Bruyne is he plays golf left or right-handed. He's just as good with both sides, with both sets of clubs. So um, Brian, as far as I was concerned, he was he was hard work. He had everything. He could hook, he could pull, he could slide. Yeah, he could do everything. He was such a wonderful player. You know, I didn't play a lot against Sashin because back then India wasn't touring every third, fourth year. In fact, it was the ICC, one of the ICC rules that every county had to play, or should I say every country had to play home and away in the space of, I think it was six years. It was a six-year or five or six-year cycle. So you're always playing home and away. We didn't do that against the Indians. I played a lot against the West Indies. I toured there twice, played, uh, I think it was two or three series at home. I played a lot against Australia at home. And I was unfortunate um, I wish I'd played more away on the Ashes series, but I was fortunate to go in the 2003 series. They had some wonderful players. The War Brothers, you know, I started against Alan Border. He was my first first, first international wicket was Alan Border, caught and bowled. I still remember that one, but I'm looking at my age now when I'm saying I played against Alan Border, but he was a wonderful player. Mark Taylor, Border. You know, you had some fantastic players in the era that I played those 10 years from 93 to 2003. But yeah, out of all of them, Brian, I think, was the best. He, he was untouchable. The fact he got 375, then he came to England and got 405. I think he got, uh, no, he got 500 or something for, for Warwickshire. And then he went back in uh, the series I didn't go to in the, in the West Indies. He got another 405, whatever. Phenomenal player. But at that era, untouchable, I think. I think what's always nice about, a uh, nice story about Brian Lara is um, is the, the record highest run score was held for years by Len Hutton. Then it was held for years by Sir Garfield Sobers. Uh, then it was held for quite a long time by Brian Lara. And then Matthew Hayden broke it for about 20 days. And then Lara broke it again. Uh, Always good to see an Aussie knocked off the perch. I've read the, I've read the book. He, he was very happy about that. I think, Daryl, we'll, we'll sort of go on talking more about uh, characters that you play. But we've already done that. Uh, I'd like to just know, so we've mentioned Lara. The best bowler that you've ever faced when you did bat? I know you were a lower order batter, but obviously you played against the best players in the world. Who, who would you say in other sides, would be the best bowler that you've seen? Well, there's nobody better than Shane Warne, was there? So he just made you look like an absolute idiot. So um, he even made Gat look an idiot the first time he bowled in the UK. So <laughs> I'll get that back at Gat. But uh, no, Brian, you know, 
I've, I've played against uh, Sharp. Um, I didn't battle a lot against Sharp, thankfully. Played a lot against Brett Lee. He was quick. Played a lot against Glenn McGrath. But by far, Shane Warne. Shane Warne made you look an absolute idiot. And he not only did it with the ball, but he did it with the mouth as well. Yeah, phenomenal player. Best there's ever been. Best I think we'll ever see. Uh, and there's some massive shoes to fill in the fact that uh, Shane Warne has been and will be, I think, legendary. He still is. He still will be. I don't think anybody's going to touch his record as far as spin bowling is concerned. You look at the number of countries around the world have had their spin bowling clinics. What have they been trying to do? They've been trying to produce another Shane Warne. Yeah, it's a phenomenal player. For me, definitely Shane Warne. I've played more against Shane than uh, than the Seamers because every time he, every time I went into bat, they just put Warney on. That was simple. I was just going to ask one other thing about your bowling. So I think that early in your career, or when when you were sort of growing up in your formative years, is it is it right that you you sort of modelled your action early days on the New Zealand legend Richard Hadley, uh, who obviously was, I think, you know, the greatest bowler that New Zealand ever produced. Um, and, and I gather that, uh, that that's kind of something that you tried to emulate early in your career. It wasn't really because I used to be a big chest on bowler. You remember Lance Kens, who used to play for New Zealand many years ago. So I was a big chest on bowler and I used to bowl big in swingers, big lanky in swinger. The one benefit I had playing in New Zealand for underage groups. The New Zealand Cricket Council, every year, for two consecutive years, when I, was, I think it was when I was 16 and 17, I actually might have been when I was 17 and 18, they used to employ Dennis Lilly to come across and do a fast bowlers clinic in New Zealand. So he'd spend two days of the week. So he'd do a Monday, Tuesday in Auckland. He'd fly down to Christchurch on a Wednesday, and he'd do Thursday, Friday in Christchurch. So all the North Island bowlers, fast bowlers, went to Auckland. All the South Island bowlers went to Christchurch. They were the best clinics as a fast bowler you could ever go to. So anybody who was playing underage group, who was quick, could be put forward by their district, their county, whatever, into these clinics. Now, Dennis changed me completely from being a front-on bowler to a side-on bowler. And I went all the way around. I went too far around. But the beauty of it, what it did for me is it used my long levers. So I went from bowling probably... I don't know, 75 mile an hour in swingers to 85 mile an hour quickie bowl. Because I remember going back the following week, I'd played a, a club game for Rickerton, who I used to play for, against Old Collegian, which used to play at a little place called Elmwood Park. And I came into bowl, completely changed, and I hit this bloke in the side of the rib. And um, he went down like a, excuse my French, like a sack of <laughs> Because I just bowled, I reckon, about two, three yards quicker. And it just came out of nowhere. But the benefit from that for me was Dennis then came back the following year. I went to that session again. And this is the thing that I think makes makes all the difference to youngsters. If you have people of that caliber coaching you, people like Dennis Lilly coaching you, it makes you stand up and listen to these people because they have history. They are, they are experts. They are legends. And that's what I did. I listened. But the benefits as well that test of that clinic was this. Richard Hadley was there as well. And he was then supporting, talking about the mental preparations for for fast bowling. Because Dennis and Lily, well, Lily was Hadley's idol. Hadley used to say, there was four things he used to say before he bowled every ball. Rhythm, Lily, hate, off stump. Those were the four key words he used to say every time he used to bowl. Rhythm, Lily, hate, off stump. Every single ball, he said, he used to say that. And it focused him on his game, on, 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 that, on that ball and that over. 
But the, one of the other things that was really important for us as a, as a fast bowler, there was one set. There were sessions that we went out and bowled in the nets, and there was one key player we used to turn up and bowl against. And there wouldn't be, you know, it's not Joe Bloggs who's just a net player comes in. So as a youngster, you were coming in bowling with Dennis Lee talking to you about how to bowl and how to bowl quick. You're bowling at the then New Zealand captain, Martin Crowe. So Martin Crowe would come along to these fast bowling clinics, who was then the New Zealand up-and-coming captain, main batter for, for New Zealand. You were bowling at Martin Crowe. And I remember vividly Dennis Lilly saying to you as a 17-year-old, go on, son, knock his effing head off. So you're running in at the New Zealand premier batsman trying to knock his head off. And that's what Dennis was trying to teach you, to be aggressive, to be to be controlling, but be aggressive as the way you bowl. So that's what I'm trying to say as far as players these days and up-and-coming players, you need the generation that is showing and the legends of now and legends of before to help develop those young players. So that's what did it for me. I used to come off a very long run. I didn't shorten my run to the run I did now because the long run was just too too long. And it just took too long to bowl and over, and it was it was knackering. And I felt I said to myself, "How do I shorten my run up?" And who who could help me? I just went. There's only one fast bowler in the world that's actually shortened his run up, got the rhythm, and done the damage, and that was Hadley. So I changed my run up to a shorter run up based on what Hadley did. It wasn't he who should I say coached me in those younger years. It was Dennis Lilly who helped coach me in those younger years and progressed me to the bowler I was today. That certainly wouldn't be a, a bad person to uh, feed off of, and uh, another you know, legend of the game. Uh, it's been uh, uh, fantastic, sort of talking about your your sort of formative years, Andrew, and uh, and how you developed. And actually, I think it gives quite a good sort of insight into we've got a lot of young people, youngsters watching this every week um, from Oxfordshire and beyond. And every week we ask this question, and you've kind of already answered it actually in terms of what advice you would give to a young up-and-coming cricketer, particularly a bowler, because that's your sort of trump card, so to speak. So the advice that you give um, is is essentially be yourself, but also listen listen to advice and take on take on board, I guess, uh, what works for you. Yeah, well, you know, it was one of... I was... I came into the England side in the early 90s, and we had a gentleman there as a coach called Jeff Arnold, and Jeff was very good. He would talk to you, he would... You'd try and encourage you. You'd try and try things with you. And it was always encouraging. And then you had people like Bob Carter who came on board. And then you had other bowlers, bowling coaches come on. But at the end of the day, I'd always go back to listening and thinking what Dennis used to say to me. I remember vividly my A-tour to Australia. We went to Perth to play a, a four-day game there. I didn't actually plan the game, but during the lunch intervals, I'd go out and I'd bowl. And lo and behold... <laughs> I was out there bowling in the middle and Dennis Lilly turned up and walked out to the middle. He remembered who I was in New Zealand and he came up and said, hi, hi Andy, how are you? How are you going? And he stood there for five, ten minutes and he talked to me about what I was doing and what I was trying to do. Now that, again, is the one thing that I would suggest any young cricketer does. And that is, don't be frightened if somebody comes to coach or somebody comes to watch who's been at that level Go and ask them a question. What do you think about this? What do you think? Don't be frightened to do it. Most, I tell you, 99% of the players who have played at that level will happily sit there and talk to you. That is where you learn. Okay, As players, we learn more in the bar 
after the game talking to the opposition for something like Somerset, the ground at Somerset, the change rooms were below, the, were above, should I say, the, the main bar on the ground. So you'd come down from the dress rooms, you walk into the bar, the opposition would be there, you'd have a few drinks, and you'd talk about the game. And it was the same playing test cricket in the early days. You'd walk into the opposition dress room, you'd talk about the game, you'd, because that's what cricketers do. It doesn't matter what culture you came from or what country you came from or what county you played for. Talk. So don't be frightened as a youngster. If somebody comes up to you and says, oh, how are you as a player, an ex-England player, an ex-county player, ask them a question. What do you think about this? What do you think? They will more than happily give you advice. That's my saying. So don't be afraid to ask. If you don't ask, you won't find out and you will never learn. And whatever advice you get, don't think, oh, no, that's rubbish. Because one day, the bit of advice you had four years ago might be relevant to the way your games develop now. So as far as youngsters are concerned, take all that information, store it away, and then one day you might find that that little bit of information you had two years before or six months before with a coach might be relevant to the to what you're doing today. And that might be as batting, bowling, or, or as spin, or even wicket-keeping. So try and be a sponge and don't be afraid to ask a question. That would be my advice to the youngsters today. That's really good advice. I, I, Daryl's actually used that phrase before about being a sponge and, and taking in all the information and, and sort of analysing the information that you get. And if you put it all together, you know, you're going to potentially develop yourself into the cricketer you want to be. Uh, Daryl, I'll, I'll hand back to you. Um, obviously, we'd like to talk a little bit, Andrew, about um, why we're doing this and why we've been doing this for the last 15 weeks, which is the Lord's Taverners, which I know is a charity really close to your heart, Daryl. Daryl, uh, over to you to um, sort of uh, talk about the Lord's Taverners with Andrew. Yeah, just I, I know you do a lot of work talking to, to Merving as well. What, how did that come about and what are you sort of in the process of doing with the tabs at the moment? Taverners came about um, not mainly with the head office in London. Taverners came about a lot uh, with the Channel Islands because um, back in the day there was a gentleman called Mike O'Hara used to uh, – used to do a benefit match each year. So you'd take a county would go across and the beneficiary of that year would play against, say, Somerset beneficiary might play against the Knotts team beneficiary at the end of the summer. And the winning team would come back the next year to play another opposition team, it might be Sussex or whatever. And from that developed into the Lord's Taverners for me because the Lord's Taverners in Guernsey asked me to come and support them on the island, which I did. Now, I've been back and forth to Guernsey with the Lord's Taverners I think for the last 20 odd years, I think, I think it was last year. Some fortunate it's not happening this year, but last year was probably about my 20th, 20, 22nd year of going back and forth. So it might be even longer than that, to be honest. But then, then the affiliation came with head office when they started playing a lot more cricket. So I've been involved with the head office and Lord's Taverners there probably for the last 10, 12 years, but it's just about supporting something that we all enjoy the game of cricket and uh, the benefits are the people who benefit from it. So those children, the, the, the charity supports, it's a fantastic charity, and it, and it allows those children to experience what sportsmen would have, would, have, would have experienced when they played, but on a lower level, whether that's actually playing table tennis cricket or actually out there playing other sports. So it's not just about cricket they support. They, they support a massive range of sport for disadvantaged children, but it's a great charity because it's giving to those people who are they're more or less suppressed because of the environment they live in and the chances for them to get out and about 
in the green minibuses, which is a massive uh, use of an item that a lot of people, you know, from these homes and from these specialist units don't get the opportunity. These kids don't get an opportunity to get out in the in, in society. So that for them is massive. That's why when you see those green buses, they're used and they're used every day, most of the days to transport children to various events. But uh, it's a massive charity. As I said, I've been involved in it for a number of years. I enjoy the cricket. I enjoy the times we spend with each other as far as on little tours or around the country playing some great, great village cricket, some great cricket local club teams. But it's a fantastic charity and it's always a charity that I'll always be associated with and happy to help. Fantastic words, Andrew. I do want to just do some quick fire questions, if I, I may, to, to finish up. I'll, um, I'll make the answers short, I promise. <laughs> Not as short as Kira's questions, I'm sure, because they, they do tend to be a bit long. He's, he's smiling. He's smiling. I wanted to mention a person that I, I actually, well, I actually had the privilege of playing against you as well, but also a chap called Von Truce who played at Somerset for a short period of time. And in Freddie Flintoff's autobiography, said it's the fastest bowler he had, had ever faced. And it was certainly quick when I faced him. Was, it, was he, you know, destined for big things, do you think? Or be, I know injury curtailed his career. Yeah. Yeah, no, he he was quick. I remember we go when I'm talking about when I started playing back in the uh, early '90s when I was still qualifying, and when I was talking about second team cricket in the UK. Okay, this is what I'm talking about: how good second team cricket was in the UK. The opening attack we had a game against Lancashire at Taunton, and the opening attack for Somerset. And funny enough, Jason Kerr and there was a bloke called Jason Kerr and Andy Payne who were in the opposition for Lancashire. Now Jason Kerr is the Somerset coach. The only attack for Somerset in that game was Caddick, Von Troost, Kenneth Benjamin, little fella called Hungry Walsh, little West Indian, and uh, uh, Ken McClay. Now, Ken McClay was a fantastic Western, West Australian uh, cricketer, all-rounder. One, he was a bit like a, a Terry Alderman as far as the bowling world is concerned, and he could bat as well, which Terry couldn't. But that was our opening attack, Okay. Now, all those, there was one fella that was quicker than, quicker than all of them. And it wasn't Rooster, it wasn't me, and it wasn't Kenneth. It was a little fella called Hungry Walsh, who was only about five foot eight, but he was quick. And he was so quick that the warm-up nets games before the warm-up nets before these games he was playing as a trialist, Somerset batsmen, even the first team batsmen, wouldn't get in the nets with him because he kept bumping people on the head. And the other thing is they wouldn't get in the nets with Rooster either. That was the sort of mentality and the sort of grade we were playing. In fact, if you had a trialist, there was a gentleman who used to, Peter Robinson was then the Somerset coach, and he used to get trialists come in, and these trialist batsmen would come in, and he just turned to us, he just turned to us quartet and say, see that lad there? He wants to take your, he wants to take your job. So we'd run in and terrorise them. But the beauty of that was it saw straight away whether they had the bottle or not to be good cricketers. And that was the difference between now and then. You couldn't do that now. It wouldn't be politically correct to do that and terrorise a youngster coming in and bowling cricket. But that was a standard. Now, Rooster, you you, you did say that about uh, Andrew uh, Andrew Flintoff saying that. There was another player who said that, and I value this player's opinion more than Freddie Flintoff's. Fred, uh, sorry, um, Rooster played a game. This is when I had my shin problems back in 95. He played a game at... Bath, when we used to play at Bath, I think it was uh, coming was Middlesex. Desmond Haynes was playing. Desmond Haynes came out and it was verbally said, said to say, 
That's the quickest spell of bowling he has ever faced in world cricket. And that was from Andre Von Troost. So he was phenomenal. He was quick. He was tall. It was frightening as far as batsmen concerned. And what summed it up for me, we played a game against Worcester at Taunton. Tim Curtis was batting, opening the batting for, for Worcester. First ball, Rooster comes into bowl. Tim lifted the bat up. Before he even moved, Rooster hit him in the head. First ball of the game. Now, Tim Curtis was a very good player of pace bowling. In fact, he went on and got 100 after that. But the first ball, he hit Tim Curtis in the head with the first ball. So he was quick. And it was just unfortunate. There was, there was little rumblings going on at the time that he could qualify and play for England. That's how good he was. Unfortunately, he got a few injuries. He got a bit of the yips. And then, unfortunately for him, it just fell apart. But we lost something that was truly awesome at Somerset in Von True. So he was, you know, you could go any player. Alex Stewart will tell you exactly the same. They played a game at the Oval. Rooster bowled them out because the batsman didn't want to go and face them. That's how quick he was. And you ever ask Stewart a question, Alex Stewart? He'll give you that answer. So phenomenal player. Just a real shame that his career came to such a sudden end. Absolutely. I mean, the question, I'm obviously going to ask you what superpower, you can have a time to think about that one, uh, what superpower you would have. But my last question around cricket really is the World Cup squad of 2003, where I think Jimmy Anderson made his debut. Was there signs there that he could go on to be one of the best fast bowlers that England had produced, do you think? Was there signs? There were signs, but he was a youngster. He's a bit of a terror terrorist, or should I say terror away? I shouldn't really use that word terrorist, but terror away at the time. He also had that unfortunate, you know, they picked up on it very quickly where when he delivered the ball, his head was looking the other way. And the press, again, back then, they got stuck into him. And then he lost a little bit. And thankfully, he went back to Lancashire for a couple of years and he learned his trading and slightly remodeled his action and came back into the side. I think it was 2004 or five. So, um, and that's when he established himself just after that. But yeah, no, it's, you don't really know at that stage how good you're going to be because you may be good at first class level, but the step up from first class to test level is quite big. And it's not just about the, the, the bowling attitude or being in the ability. It's about the discipline of actually saying to yourself, look, this is what I've got to do and the pressure of doing it. Luckily, when he started coming onto the uh, onto the scene, because you had ECB and you were you were part of a contracted player, you were looked after. Uh, prior to that, when I was playing early nineties, uh, back in 95, 96, you were, you you had so much pressure on you. Not only from the press, you had it from the the, uh, the coaches, you had it from the selectors. But then again, you had it on yourself because you knew that if you didn't perform, you could be out. And you might be out for a, you know a test series, might be out for a year, might, and they go they go around in a cycle, and then you come back into the fray again, and the pressure was always on you. But as far as Jimmy was concerned, I think there was there were signs of it, but it wasn't until he came back after that little spell going back to Lancashire, where he remodeled his action a little bit, and then became started learning his trait and the skills that he has now to becoming the phenomenon he has been for England and continues to be. Kieran, I know you might want to just finish off for, for your side of things. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave you to ask the superpower question. Uh, Andrew, for me, I just want to say a, a massive thank you for 
spending some time with us this evening. Um, you know, an hour and a half with me—that's that—that's worth a, a knighthood, to be honest. Spending all that time with me <laughs> and with Daryl. So, thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing um, for the Laws Taverners. Um, been an absolute pleasure. You were one of—I uh, don't want to make you sound old at all because it's not 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 meant—but you were one of the first sort of players I really looked up to when I was sort of. Uh, watching cricket when I was sort of growing up, to be honest. And uh, it, it's it's amazing to, uh, Daryl says it every week, it's amazing to have you on the same screen as us and talking to you. Um, and, and thank you again. And thank you for everything you do for the Lords Taverners. Um, Daryl's got the, the final question, um, which is his, his uh, piece de la resistance, I suppose. But uh, he's given you a bit of time. So I'll send that over to Smashy or Nicey or whoever you are to, to finish this one off. Superpower, Andy, what would it be? Being invisible. We've had and that before. Yeah, I'm being invisible because you'd have a lot of fun with being invisible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you, 100%, to be fair. As Kieran's already said, the thank yous. But, yeah, big thank you from me as well to be our 15th and final Masked Cricketer of this series. Guys, we are coming back. I'm sorry, but we are coming back. I will say a massive thank you to everybody who's taken part in the last... 15 weeks. I won't mention everybody, but it it's just been brilliant to get everybody together. We've had an apps. I've had an absolute ball with it. It's been great fun, um, but it's been really interesting as well. We've seen it from so many different angles. It's just been a really sort of a great roller coaster ride, uh, as something that's gone a little bit more popular along the way, as well as doing it for charity. Please donate down on that Just Giving page. We will be back. That we've booked people in are absolutely fantastic. So you know you'd be silly to miss our second series. Hopefully, I will say on behalf of the Lord Staveners guys, brilliant effort. Thank you for supporting the Lord Staveners, and I can assure you there are a lot of people out there that will continue supporting you and will support this masked cricketer, or should I say masked entertainer, or should I say masked celebrity, whatever it is. Uh, it's, it's our pleasure. Thanks. It really is. But thank you for those kind words, guys. It all for me to say really is. Thanks again. See you in a couple of months. And don't forget, when you come back, it's hashtag Ask the Mask. Cheerio for now. You have been listening to the finale of Season 1 of The Mask Cricketer. Today's hosts were, as usual, Woodsy and K-Dog. Theme music was Swing House by RKBC. It was certainly thrown together by Daryl Woods and Kieran Bushnell. Special thanks goes to today's 15th and final mass cricketer, Andy Caddick. As usual, if you would like to make a donation to the Lord Taverners charity, please head over to justgiving.com forward slash the mass hyphen cricketer. We've raised over £3,000 so far and we'd love to hit 10. By the way, want to know when season two is about to start? Follow us on Twitter at Mask Cricketer. And if you wish to watch live, head over to youtube.com forward slash the Mask Cricketer and hit that subscribe button and bell. See you next time in season two.